afternoon, everyone. This is Greg Lois. Thanks for joining me. Uh, today we are going to talk about the latest, craziest thing from the state that just keeps surprising us with kooky responses to the panic. Uh, today we're going to be talking about uh, New Jersey legislature uh, passing the COVID-19 Presumption Act, and then our silly-hearted governor, Phil Murphy, signing it into law on Monday. Uh, every little bit about this has been entertaining from a, what's the worst possible thing you can do for employers and carriers? Uh, welcome to Jersey. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit uh, about what the new law means. Uh, we're going to talk a lot about how we're going to respond to it. We're going to provide some guidance for our recommendations for how we're going to uh, resolve cases or challenge or dispute them. So, uh, Today I'm going to walk through what the new law says, what the important parts of it. Uh, we're going to talk about how sloppy this law is in terms of who it covers and who it doesn't cover. I'm going to talk about what the changes to the jurisdictional standard of proof means for employers and carriers in New Jersey. I'm going to, of course, have to talk a little bit about the infectious disease itself and the difference between a diagnosis and an impairment. I'm going to talk about the investigation we're going to be asking for from our clients. And if you haven't read what we've put on our website, our list of 40 plus questions to determine or used to be to determine compensability, uh, still very important and still very useful right now. And finally, I'm going to answer as many of your questions as I can. Now, over the last couple of days, I've been fielding dozens of phone calls about this change. Uh, and the goal for today is to give you as much uh, of the benefit of our experience with the COVID-19 claims we're defending. Uh, and also try to answer as many of the common questions that I've been getting. Uh, but I'm also here live to answer as many questions as you have, and I'll try to keep this open as long as questions keep coming in. So you can type them in now, and I will answer your questions at the end of this presentation. My presentation, by the way, is only going to be about 10 minutes, so start typing now. Now, when I answer a question during a webinar, I'm only going to say your first name. I'll read the parts of the question out loud so everybody can hear the question. I'll never say your last name, and I'll ask that you please don't give me specifics or your claimant or petitioner name or employer name, because uh, I really don't want to become your attorney during this webinar. I really just want to give generalized advice uh, to generalized questions. Uh, so please uh, help me uh, not get into any conflict issues by giving me just the uh, most basic information you can provide, usually uh, general idea of what type of exposure you're looking at, what type of alleged infection vector, and then we'll talk about how we'll defend those cases. So I'm very happy to do that for you. Uh, type your questions in now. There's a little box uh, for questions, and I will answer as many of them uh, as I can at the end. All right. Uh, what does the new law say? I hope by now everyone's had a chance uh, to read the uh, uh, lengthy article on our website and also review the actual uh, law itself. Uh, this law essentially was signed uh, as it was first approved back in May, uh, and then as it by the assembly, and then passed the, the Senate. Um, now, by law in New Jersey, uh, a bill passed becomes law in 45 days unless the governor vetoes or conditionally vetoes it. And that 45th day was Monday, September 14th. So, although the governor uh, takes credit and signs this thing into law, it would have been law anyway as of Monday uh, if he hadn't signed it. Uh, so maybe he just woke up that morning and said, well, I'll go ahead and sign this thing, so at least it looks like I'm doing this intentionally. Uh, intentional or not, uh, we do expect this to have a huge negative impact for employers and carriers because it will bring, uh, we believe, a huge new influx of claims, 
And those claims that have already been filed will now get the benefit of this kooky presumption. So let's begin and talk about what the new law says. First, the law says, quote, there is a rebuttable presumption that COVID, that any COVID-19 infection by an essential employee, and that goes on to define what that is, is work-related. All right, so in order to defend these cases, uh, we need to know what those words mean and how they will apply to our case and employee uh, population. So first, I'm going to talk about what the rebuttable presumption means, what that standard really means, and of course, how, how we're going to rebut it. And then I need to talk about who qualifies as a affected employee under this. And uh, whoop, my podium is sinking here. Give me a second to lift this thing back up. That's a big whoops. There we go. Okay. Uh, who qualifies as one of those essential uh, essential employees? Because uh, although the verbiage of the uh, law itself says, well, this applies to public safety workers, healthcare workers, uh, there have been about 75 executive orders declaring all sorts of different professions uh, essential. So let's go into that. Uh, first, what is a rebuttable presumption? Well, uh, it comes from a fancy Latin term. I'm going to screw this up, presumptio juris tantrum, uh, which basically just says that a court is allowed to take an assumption in a, first, in a specific case or a party to a case is given the benefit of an assumption. And, you know, we're all uh, very... Uh, uh, familiar with probably the most common presumption that we've all seen from watching the TV show Law and Order, uh, a defendant is considered innocent until proven guilty. So that's the basic assumption there. Now, in this situation, uh, the rebuttable pre presumption will be that any essential employee, any public safety worker, any public health employee, any health worker uh, is going to be uh, presumed to have contracted COVID-19 infection at work unless it is actively refuted. It means we have to actively challenge or dispute that statement. And what are we gonna need to rebut that is really our first question. So the first, uh, how do we rebut this presumption uh, is actually defined or uh, addressed directly in the new law. Section two of the law says that the carrier or employer must show, quote, a preponderance of the evidence, close quote, showing that the worker uh, was not exposed to the disease. So that's an interesting thing. We're not going to, they're not talking about refuting the diagnosis. They're talking about the exposure, right? So uh, this is the uh, uh, presumption applies to causal relationship. And it's up to us to show that there was some other causal relationship of this disease, some infection vector that was not the place of employment. And when we really start to unpack how we're going to challenge that uh, presumption, we're gonna literally need to show that there either was no COVID-19 uh, or that we are using prophylactic measures that were so uh, stringent and so comprehensive uh, that there was no potential way they could have been exposed to COVID-19 or that they simply weren't working for us in our facility, et cetera, uh, during the time period leading up to the COVID-19 infection. That of course uh, will require us uh, to also present and be prepared to uh, rebut uh, some of the basic medical uh, facts and uh, uh, about COVID-19 diagnosis. This means uh, risk professionals, defense counsel, are going to need to be pretty conversant in the various types of tests. Uh, for example, the RNA versus the mere antibody test. They're going to need to know which one of those tests are accepted currently. Uh, by the CDC as a test that is valid 
Uh, for example, there's more than 100 RNA tests currently in the market. There's only 58 that have been accepted by the Center for Disease Control as valid for showing an actual uh, disease uh, infection. So, you know, there's a lot of permutation in here and a lot of room, I believe, for us to argue regarding the science. And, and just to talk just for just a second about that, in most of the cases that I've seen, and this case, this office um, in between New York and New Jersey, uh, we're defending dozens and dozens of these cases in New York and New Jersey. Uh, we have actually already in New York tried some of these cases all the way to conclusion. Uh, and we've closed, I think 11 or 12 so far after trial. Uh, and the, the basis of those defenses have essentially been causal relationship and arguing on the medical causation issues. Uh, so we're pretty far ahead, I think, or pretty down the road because of our experience in New York, uh, knowing how to defend these cases from a medical uh, diagnosis standpoint in New Jersey. And the first thing you're going to look at on the causal relationship is, was there actually any COVID-19 exposure in the workplace? How are we going to rebut that answer? We're going to talk about prophylactic measures. We're going to talk about a lack of infection in the workplace. We're going to talk about employees not actually even working in a workplace. Okay. Some of that may be difficult to uh, overcome, and I think those reasons are going to be, for example, employees that have a lot of contact with members of the public. It's just going to be really challenging to show that everybody, member of the public they came into contact with was, for example, properly masked up and all of those things. So that could be a challenge. The next stop is going to be attacking the diagnosis itself and arguing that this didn't even occur. Uh, and that's because we've seen a lot of faulty diagnosis, uh, particularly early on. We saw a lot of diagnosis that was based on uh, uh, symptomology. Uh, so particularly early, February, March, we're seeing cases where the person says, well, I had an infection, I feel a little sick, and I have a runny nose. They say, okay, you've got COVID-19. Uh, currently, that is not the standard of care, and so going back in time, um, that's been a good uh, way of disputing those cases. We also saw early in the um, outbreak cases that were being diagnosed by way of chest x-ray. Uh, there are now published literature saying that a chest x-ray is not a good way of uh, diagnosing a COVID-19 infection. So again, we do think there's a lot of room in here to attack that rebuttable presumption, and I'll talk about that even further going on. All right, next thing we need to know is who's an essential employee and what kind of people are going to be considered essential, What are, who are specifically enumerated in the act as an essential employee, uh, and what does that mean? So the presumption applies to, in, according to the act, healthcare workers, public safety workers, and quote, any essential employee as extended by subsequent executive orders, close quote. Now, our silly-hearted governor, I happen to live in New Jersey, by the way, uh, started issuing executive orders in March. Uh, since then, he's issued about, by my count, more than 75 additional executive orders, each one of them slightly tweaking who's an essential worker, what type of businesses can stay open, what kind of businesses can stay closed. Um, and so uh, we think that a lot of those workers, particularly those that are going to be working in the transportation, uh, logistics, food service, food, um, beverage, uh, production, anything that could be potentially even deemed even slightly essential and enumerated in an executive order is going to be a potential candidate for bringing a claim under this new law and getting the benefit of this presumption. So let's talk about the specifically enumerated types of employees. Well, first, healthcare worker. And healthcare worker is defined in the statute as, quote, an individual, close quote, uh, employed by a healthcare facility, which means you need to know what a healthcare facility is. And so then it goes on to describe what is a healthcare facility. And essentially, it's saying any non-federal institution, building, or agency, a portion uh, 
uh, thereof, whether public or private, for profit or nonprofit, that is used, operated, designed to provide health services, medical or dental treatment, or nursing, rehabilitation, or preventive care to any person. So it's really going to be anything. I mean, this could even be uh, you're, you work in a dentist's office or literally anything. All right, I'm seeing, I'm seeing that it's going black over there on the monitor. Are we okay? It looks like it's not okay. Uh, it looks like the webcam switched somehow. I'll fix that. This stuff sometimes happens when we touch the wrong button. Sorry, everybody. All right, I fiddled with something. All right, uh, so healthcare worker, it's going to be literally anyone involved in, okay, just keeps, maybe it's just broken. Okay, that stuff happens. All right, who's a healthcare worker? Uh, that could be literally anyone in any of these uh, employments. And essentially, uh, let me just try one more time and see if I can fix this correctly so you get the benefits of what's going on in the slides. I'm now getting a current thumbs up, so I'm not going to touch anything further. Still good? Nope. Every time I close that window, it breaks again. Ah. Maybe this computer has coronavirus. Who knows? All right. I'm going to leave this like this. I'm not even going to close this one because I don't know what I'm doing anymore. Okay. Uh, so healthcare worker, I think this is going to be basically anybody who can claim any kind of communication or uh, any tangential even uh, 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 employment with anything involving healthcare, preventative care, anything. Next, who's a public safety worker? Uh, it's defined again in this in the new statute as a member, employee, or officer, uh, paid or unpaid. So remember, in New Jersey, uh, over 700 towns has like 500 little volunteer fire departments and ambulance corps and all sorts of things like this as well as anybody who's working in a first aid or rescue squad, as well as anyone in any kind of, with any kind of medical training who responds in any way to any type of emergency. So this is gonna be quite massive and have a huge impact on our uh, municipal uh, and local employers, as well as those at the state and county level, because they're all included uh, under this definition. And then uh, the statute goes on even further to say basically anybody who the governor has declared an essential worker working in essential industry uh, since this uh, beginning, and they go and they start talking about his first order, Order 103, uh, which was issued way back in March, which is, by the way, been extended again by more than 75 different orders. So you get all sorts of confusing uh, subsequent orders, uh, and it is essentially put almost every single employment as essential. Everything from gas station workers, uh, people that work at uh, 7-Eleven, any type of retail employments, uh, essentially everything is covered uh, with just a couple small exceptions. So instead of listing everybody who's actually covered, I'm going to talk about those who are not uh, so far, have not been deemed essential so far. Everyone but casino workers, racetrack workers, gym employees, movie theaters, and performing arts center employees. Uh, and even uh, uh, you can look at recreational employments that have been canceled. So things like um, uh, town municipal pools and uh, people that work for, for example, um, uh, youth recreational facilities, lifeguards, all have been deemed uh, non-essential. So it's almost everybody that's going to be found essential by way of executive order. Uh, and you know, I've seen a, a number of different analysis of that formulation. By my count, it's going to fall on almost everybody. Uh, and so this is not a very small or uh, uh, limited or tailored population that we're talking about. 
All right, so now we know what's changed in the law, and that's that this presumption of causal relationship to the workplace is being inferred or provided to anybody who worked. Uh, now we need to talk about how we're going to defend these. Uh, and I think this is where I get most of the questions. Are these even defensible? And the answer is yes. Um, Greg, do I have to go back in time and everybody who was out of work for the last six months uh, and who may or may not have COVID-19, do I now have to file workers' comp claims for them? The answer is no. There doesn't seem to be anything uh, instructing us to do that. And I'm providing guidance to our clients that no, we're not going to go back and start inferring them. Greg, what about cases that we've already disputed, denied, controverted, or are in otherwise denying? Well, no, that doesn't mean that they're all automatically compensable. We've asserted defenses. We're going to assert that we're going to try to rebut this presumption and at least begin our fight on causal relationship. There's a whole nother fight down the road, which I'll talk about in a second, and that fight is on impairment. So again, let's talk about how we're going to defend these, and I'll give you some practical advice. So when the claims are made, first, I recommend disputing almost all of these. Uh, that's been our argument from the beginning. I can tell you uh, the majority of the cases that we're defending, and again, this law firm is 31 attorneys. Uh, predominantly, our work is in New York. We're in every New York court uh, every day. Uh, we've got dozens and dozens of them, and we've been pushing very hard. New York does not have a presumption. Obviously, New Jersey didn't until Monday either. And But uh, the reason I keep referring to New York is because that's where predominantly we've tried the majority of these cases. And again, we are attacking everything from exposure to diagnosis uh, to impairment. Now, in New Jersey, it seems like they're trying to take exposure or causal relationship off the table as something to attack. That's okay. We should still be looking at the diagnosis. There still needs to be, A, an affirmative diagnosis somewhere. Uh, the claim petitions I'm seeing in New Jersey say silly-hearted things, like uh, petitioner alleges residuals of exposure to COVID-19. Cool, great. Uh, you know, within six months, the, presumably two-thirds of the population will test positive for antibodies. Does that mean I caught it in the workplace? I don't know. Uh, so these residual cases are cases where they have not given you an affirmative diagnosis. I think those are quite defensible. Um, we still think uh, that the exposure claims, the ones where it's just in general, somehow I got it at work, I'm not quite sure how, uh, those are still going to be susceptible to a strong defense. Um, I think that the traumatic specific accident cases, those are the ones that we're going to have to take a very close look at. Was there an actual infection vector? Was there something determinate in time, specific enough in time, uh, that we can look to the facts of the loss or not? All right. Um, how we're defending them uh, is involving a lot of contact with the employers. And we're finding out that, yes, there were prophylactic measures put in place. Great. I'm going to use that to argue that there could not be an exposure and the presumption uh, is going to be rebutted. Uh, how about where the person didn't work for the two for us for the two weeks leading up to their positive test? I think that's another great example, and I think we can come up with many of them. The other thing we're seeing is a lot of employees who have two jobs, uh, and, you, and they may fall into the essential category for us, but they also have a job somewhere else doing something for somebody else. Uh, guess what? We should be getting contribution, if this thing is determined to ultimately be compensable, from someone else. So don't forget to look at the potential for exposure uh, in some other employment. And that, again, is an avenue for contribution and then a reduction of exposure. And I'm talking about financial exposure uh, to our clients. Uh, and the last thing I think we should be thinking about or keep be mindful of uh, is that diagnosis. We've seen a lot of really weak diagnosis, diagnosis that is based on an antibody test. It's useless, nearly useless uh, in terms of fixing it in time. Because the thing we're going to keep looking at is the chronology. Uh, when were you infected? 
how how often or when were you last in the employment with me before that infection? Uh, a lot of businesses have been absolutely completely shut down. Uh, does anybody remember 15 days to flatten the curve? We had a lot of businesses that were shut down for 15 or 30 days and then started to reopen. In the meantime, people were infected or uh, started getting their diagnosis. I still think those are very defensible in terms of the chronology of that causation. Uh, the last thing uh, is defending these cases is going to be, and this is again, if we can't overcome the presumption, uh, there is no presumption that they've been permanently impaired. I hate to sound morbid or maybe uh, unsympathetic, but really in our case population, which is pretty large in terms of COVID-19, we see essentially two outcomes. Outcome one, somebody was sick for some short period of time, usually two to three weeks. They may have been hospitalized. They then are back to work. It's over. Uh, and that's really over 90% of our cases. Outcome two, they are dead. Uh, and it really seems that the cases that we've determined uh, are either resulting in what appears to be a complete uh, 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 ability to return to work in an unrestricted, unaccommodated fashion, or this thing kills you. And generally it kills you because you have some extensive, very extensive comorbidities. Uh, number one, being di diabetic. Number two, being obese. Uh, so we're seeing a lot of these, uh, the death cases, they, I haven't seen one where the person was a young, relatively healthy person and who succumbed. We just don't see that. They've had a number of comorbidities. Unfortunately, in New Jersey, you take the claimant as you find them. Uh, and there is not going to be a contribution for non-work-related uh, conditions leading to death if uh, we have hastened or worsened uh, that condition leading to death. So unfortunately, it doesn't really help us, but it does uh, help uh, focus on what a small percentage of population are going to have that permanent residual disability. Now, uh, in terms of impairment, the thing I want everyone to be aware of uh, is we are starting to see cases in which the permanent impairment is psychiatric illness. Uh, they're essentially saying my, my uh, client has become mentally ill because they are afraid of returning to any type of gainful employment and contracting or co communicating with the public. Um, I've also seen um, mental mental cases. I've seen cases where employees uh, refuse to come into work saying they're too scared to come to work because they have to interact with the public. And so that's a pure mental mental. That's purely saying, I am so scared of coming to work, I can't go to work. Uh, that's my actual injury. I think, again, those are extremely defensible cases. Uh, particularly the, the mental cases or the psych cases, the anxiety cases where the person says, well, I contracted COVID-19, now I'm scared to return to the employment. It's like, well, you can't get it twice, as far as we know, as far as the medical is telling us, as far as what, everything we know about infectious disease. So you're worried really about the next flu that comes along. And, you know, the flu up until this year has never, ever been considered a compensable injury, uh, just like male pattern baldness or chronic halitosis or any other thing that's, you know, just clearly widespread and not causally related to any one particular employment. All right, so my advice is, look, even if you think your presumption defense is not going to be successful, I suggest you raise it to be prepared to move the case to closure quickly. And the second aspect is you haven't lost uh, the ability to challenge impairment. And again, in most of these cases, we would expect the impairment to be nothing. Uh, just like uh, when someone has a bad uh, flu or bad pneumonia and they're out for a couple of weeks to come back to work, uh, they do the same job. And that's really what we've been seeing. So anecdotally, I can tell you, there doesn't seem to be any real impairment. Again, beware of the mental mental claims. All right, uh, that's what I've got to talk about. And now I'm hoping that there are some great fun questions for me to answer uh, that I can jump into. And 
Uh, see what we've got. Nope, I don't want handouts. I want questions. Questions. Okay. I see. Oh, there's a lot. So this is going to be good. Thank goodness. Uh, let's see. Cheryl says, will you email me a copy of this webinar once it is completed? Nope, because there's too many people and it will take me too much time. But I will send you a link uh, to so you can rewatch the video or share it with other people. Um, Chris A. asked the question, Greg, since New Jersey took the first step to introduce the law, do you think other states will follow suit? Uh, sure, uh, uh, maybe. I mean, Illinois really was the first state that uh, enacted the silly-hearted provisions like this. Uh, the real question is whether New York's going to do it. There are a number of pending presumption bills in New York. I'm hopeful that New York does not create a presumption. I can also tell you that other states have sort of adopted a soft presumption. And for example, in New York, uh, judges are saying things to us like, hey, Greg, we've just been told that we're supposed to accept or find all of these compensable. Or Greg, we've been told that all of these go on the rocket docket so that I can make the decision in 55 days. Uh, so that's a little bit scary. So we are seeing some sort of uh, practical things happening in other places. Uh, but uh, Chris, I only practice in New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts, and those are the only states I'm watching. Uh, unfortunately, I think that there's legislation um, potential in every single state. Um, all right, so Jill asked me the question, okay, Greg, what about the other part of this statute, which says, quote, the amount of time the essential employees in capacity are unable to perform their duties as a result of it, uh, is not considered off-duty time. And she's wondering maybe why that's being done uh, or why that's being added into the statute. Well, the reason is uh, this is basically a big giveaway in a lot of ways uh, to these uh, alleged uh, first responders. Uh, this is a way of making sure that their uh, employment benefits and their future retirements are not jeopardized uh, and that they don't burn through all of their sick or off-duty time. So that's really what this means. Um, now, she asks, does this mean that an essential employee who is quarantined needs to be compensated for time quarantined? No. No. Uh, incapacitated does not mean uh, that your employment was closed by way of executive order. Uh, I also want to mention uh, that there is a misuse of the term quarantine. Closing businesses by executive order, by the way, as extra constitutional as that may be, is not a quarantine. Uh, similarly, uh, when you fly in and out of New York and New Jersey and you get off the plane and you're in the airport and they play that little thing on the on the airport PA and they go, well, you know, if you, if you come from Florida or Nevada, you got to self-quarantine for 15 days. Again, those are not quarantines. Uh, those types of measures are not the opposite of a quarantine, right? New Jersey has never had a quarantine as far as I'm aware. Uh, New York had no quarantines to the exception of one village, uh, New Rochelle. Uh, quarantine... Uh, is a actual term where the medical director, the medical health authorities in a state say you cannot leave X premises for X amount of time due to infection. Okay, you quarantine the sick. Uh, what we've seen is a closure of businesses willy-nilly uh, that has nothing to do with quarantine. And so uh, that is not something that would be compensable. And I'll uh, explain this a little further because I think it's very important and it might be useful for you when you're um, guiding your clients. Got a lot of clients call me and say, Greg, uh, I'm closing down because uh, we're scared about, uh, you know, the potential for uh, various, you know, for the infection. 
Uh, now, does my workers' comp carrier cover that? I go, no, your workers' comp carrier would never cover anything that you do prophylactically, a safety measure. Just like they don't cover, you know, they don't pay for you uh, for if you have to close your shop floor for a week and install eyewash stations or put in a ventilator hoods over your factory uh, equipment, right? All of that stuff is not something, we don't pay for prophylactic measures under workers' compensation, and this law does not expand that in any way. Uh, so I hope that answers your question. I'm happy to answer any of the questions you have. Um, okay, Cheryl Wilson says, uh, oh, sorry, I shouldn't have said your last name. Ugh, my bad. Uh, somebody says, uh, is there a list of accepted RNA tests we can obtain? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So uh, state by state, no, but the CDC does have a list of tests. Uh, and you can see they're from all over the place. There's many, many, many tests that are being uh, considered acceptable by current count. I believe it is 58 I look at that website about once a month. I will send that link to you uh, with a link to the video um, uh, of this presentation. Maureen asked the question, so Greg, if a worker is alleging that he had COVID-19 but has no medical evidence, how will this be resolved? Section 20, dismissal? Yes, yes, all of the above. So we are seeing most claim petitions filed with no medical evidence whatsoever, uh, or they come forward uh, eventually with like an urgent care note that says, patient presented with, sniffles, said they were feverish, we did a chest x-ray, they have COVID-19. I think, still think you're challenging even the diagnosis on that. You're not even getting to the presumption. You've got a great diagnosis argument. So yeah, you got a great argument. Those can absolutely be set up for a section 20 at most. My advice again, New Jersey, section 20 is a lump sum dismissal. You're talking about nuisance value on those at most. Um, okay. Okay, Lauren, Lauren asked the question, Greg, is a positive test required? In the beginning, when there were not enough tests available, people were told they likely had COVID, correct? Uh, I think that's the easiest way to defeat these claims. Uh, I'm sorry, someone said you maybe, maybe had COVID? Well, maybe you had the regular flu. Uh, maybe you had the sniffles. Maybe you had seasonal allergies. I don't know, Judge. What are we doing here? Uh, that's a nuisance case at best. Uh, I do think... Uh, Lauren, the fact that they have no test uh, does, means that they can't even get over the, the first threshold, which is no, nothing to back up their claim. Um, Matt asked the question, Greg, what is the carrier's obligation to do on claims that were previously reported, determined not compensable, no benefits paid, and closed out a mystery on our end in our claim file? Are we required to make outreach or communicate with the injured worker? My advice is absolutely not. No. Let those lie. They will have the opportunity to come forward and present their claim that, as they see fit. Uh, but you do not have a, an affirmative obligation, as far as we can tell, to go back in time and tell everyone from March 9, 2020 to present, because again, this law is retroactive to March 9, 2020, and say, hey, we denied this case, but now maybe you could bring it, and maybe this time you'll win, because now you have a presumption. Absolutely not. Not my advice. Uh, uh, John uh, Jay says, hey, Greg, John here. The executive order seems to want to capture almost everyone who is not working remotely. Do you anticipate the courts are going to take the time to better define essential? Or in this case, let's dump these on insurance companies. All right, so you're right. Uh, essentially, our first best defense is going to say, mm, this doesn't apply to you uh, because, right, you were working remotely. I think that those are going to be easy ones. Those are going to be ones where we can rebut the presumption by just saying, here's the date of the diagnosis, April 15th. Here's the last date they worked on our premises, March 13th. Goodbye, right? There's no way they could possibly prevail in my mind based on what we know from the medicals. So yeah, I think that's what's gonna happen. Uh, are the courts gonna have to address all of these strange permutations? And the fact that this kooky governor, every 
eight or nine days for the last six months has redefined exactly what the rules are, who's an essential employee, what the work rules are. I mean, remember, this is the same kook uh, who was restricting work hours and saying nobody could work before 8 a.m. He put the entire state under uh, nighttime curfews. I mean, really crazy things. When you go through these exact orders, which unfortunately I did, uh, I did um, send everybody uh, in this invitation a link to our article where you go through each and every executive order and each and every new person or uh, in, in a potential employment type was then deemed essential. I mean, remember, this is the governor who was writing executive orders saying pet grooming is become essential today. It wasn't yesterday, but it is today. All sorts of stuff. So, yeah, I think this is going to be uh, something for the courts to sort out. Unfortunately, because nearly everything is going to classify, I believe, under the orders as, uh, as essential, until those orders get thrown out as extra constitutional, uh, which, by the way, Pennsylvania, that just happened. The executive orders uh, were determined by a federal judge to be extra constitutional. Uh, I don't think that's going to change. I think we're going to be waiting to see what happens court by court. All right, Michelle asked the question, is, will employers who paid the employee during quarantine be entitled to reimbursement for those wages? All right, great one. So here's one where... Uh, I, I did a prophylactic thing. I decided for safety reasons I'm going to send you home. Now, insurance carrier, uh, those people maybe would have been compensable, therefore you have to pay me. Nope. Uh, I think this answer is the same as the answer to Jill's question, which was, hey, what about prophylactic measures? Never com uh, compensable, uh, shouldn't come in. And so the answer, Michelle, to that is um, in general, no. Um, all right. Uh, John says, hey, Greg, do you have a COVID-19 test you recommend we obtain? Absolutely not. <laughs> uh, so I think what you're saying is like, which are the good ones? Uh, the answer is they're all super duper uh, uh, sketchy. Uh, all of these, um, uh, what they're calling the media cases, are based on RNA amplification tests in which they're taking the blood. Uh, and by the way, the all RNA tests are always uh, going to be the blood or the, uh, the, um, the uh, sputum tests. Uh, they're taking that, they're amplifying it through sometimes 30, sometimes 40, sometimes 50 amplification cycles to determine if there is any of that uh, RNA, which has been converted to DNA. These tests are extraordinarily sensitive. In fact, they're so sensitive that the false positive rate on some of them is above 30%. Um, and for that reason, the CDC has thrown out a lot of the uh, testing companies. Uh, I was looking through the um, CDC approved test uh, providers to see if there's any pattern, but there doesn't. I mean, there are RNA tests that are approved from every country, including China, which scares me, uh, that are considered dispositive. So there are a lot of good ones, and there's a lot, about half so far, that they've thrown out and said, no, you can't use this test for various reasons. Uh, it also depends on the testing facility. I can tell you, in our death claims, the ones we are dis we're dis uh, disputing, we're looking at chain of custody issues. We're, we're looking at, particularly in the early days, in March and April, when all of the testing was being done in one or two testing facilities, and some of them are in California. So you've got someone in New York, upstate New York, whose test is flying across the country uh, in order to be done. You know, there's a lot of chain of custody issues in those types of cases. There's a lot of challenges. I don't feel good about saying any one of these tests is going to be good uh, for uh, to recommend. And I also do not think that a uh, systemic testing program is going to be helpful. Uh, predictively, uh, right now, uh, we, they expect by the end of the year, two-thirds of the, of the whole country will have antibodies to this thing. Uh, there are people who have antibodies to COVID-19 who have never even been exposed to COVID-19 because it's so similar uh, to the prior uh, iterations of coronavirus. In fact, the initial COVID-19 cases were just SARS, 
uh, initial COVID-19 tests were just SARS uh, tests that they rebranded because the genomes are so close. So for all those reasons, no, I don't think there's one that you could use. All right, Chris asks the next question. This is a fun one. You're employed in Pennsylvania or New York, but frequently come to New Jersey for work. Now, can I file a comp claim in New Jersey is really what he's getting to. Yeah, probably. We're going to see all sorts of kookiness, uh, particularly once the uh, trial attorneys, the plaintiff's lawyers, start advertising at every bus stop bench and, uh, you know, billboard across New Jersey says, Do you, did you ever have a positive test? I can get you money. You're going to see a lot of these. Um, Michelle asked the question, do you foresee the law judges approving Section 20s on these since the medical permanency has not yet been determined? Yeah, absolutely I do. I anticipate that, and that's what I would be steering every single one of these cases towards. Nuisance value, Section 20 lump sum dismissal. Bonnie's saying, if there's no impact on the modification, who will be paying the cost of an accepted claim? Well, guess what? Uh, your mod can't be based on it, but your base rate can. Uh, and so we do expect this to have an impact on policy premium costs into the future. Uh, John asked the follow-up question, what about claims for the flu as being work-related because the documented COVID-exposed claimant has a weakened immune system? Uh, that's an interesting thought, John, but um, I don't think that's how uh, our, our immune system works. It gets better. Uh, your immune system is anti-fragile. Uh, it should get better the more exposure you've had. In fact, uh, as I've said earlier, the initial COVID-19 test was just the SARS test rebranded, and that's because, you know, these successive flus have genomes and uh, RNA sequences that are so close to one another that they believe being exposed to coronavirus in the past will actually inoculate you to some degree to coronavirus exposure in the future. So uh, I think what you're asking is, does someone have a weakened immune state? Were they on a respirator? Do they have all these sorts of other comorbidities, and that's been sort of aggravated? That's potential. Uh, uh, Bonnie says, is there any reason to file claims with the carrier where there is a positive diagnosis but no lost time and no medical? Answer is no. Uh, I don't think so. Uh, uh, Bonnie says, what about the inability of some employees to get tested, actually see a doctor or regulated to using or relegated to using telehealth? Are these kinds of uh, presentations of COVID proof reportable under this legislation? Well, first, I don't think any of them are reportable. I don't think you've got any affirmative duty, Bonnie, as the employer or carrier to go out and try to transform all these cases to report to accepted cases. And two, I do think there's going to be a proof problem where someone didn't even bother to go to the doctor uh, or said, you know, I'll have, a little, I'll have a video chat with somebody and get my diagnosis. I think those are very attackable diagnoses, and that's how I would attack those cases. Um, Okay, my partner Karen sent me a, a funny question here. Do you anticipate an influx of medical provider claims for the hospital bills and issues of them being uh, of them providing comparison bills? Yeah, sure. You know, it's funny because we are defending a lot of medical provider claims in here in New Jersey, and I can't wait uh, for all those silly hearts to wake up and just start saying, well, everybody that we were hospitalizing for this thing uh, now has a compensable workers' comp claim. Uh, Tina says, what about, um, aren't insurance companies considered essential? And wouldn't that mean that if you worked in your office and got COVID, you could file a claim? Answer, yes, very likely. Uh, 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 Bonnie says, under this legislation, are we required to report all COVID positives? And then, no. Uh, again, I do not think that this means you go back in time and start reporting every COVID positive case. Also, as a carrier, I don't know how you'd be getting that information. Uh, we've been certainly advising employers 
that you're the private health information, protected health information of your employees. It's not going to be shared with your carrier because these are not going to be compensable conditions. Um, Gail asked me a question. If an employee test is positive on June 11th but worked with others on June 9th, is that true exposure? Uh, would that be the defense? I'm not certain how what that means. In other words, you're saying it's too soon for the test to be positive. Uh, they are clearly already positive before they came to work on June 9th. I'm not sure, but maybe if you're talking about what's the chronicity there, uh, the answer is to defend most of these cases and rebut that presumption, knowledge of the chronicity is going to be important. In other words, you're going to say it's not possible that either we separated them and they weren't in the workplace for so long that it couldn't possibly be due to us, or you know, I guess in your case, it's so short, it's you know the same day you first report to work, you're also caught positive, it's impossible, the infection couldn't progress that quickly, uh, although some of these tests are quite sensitive, uh, and for that reason, uh, you could deny it as well. And again, you're attacking the diagnosis, and that di attack vector would be uh, the chronicity of that. It's just too short in time or too long in time. All right, uh, that's all the questions I got. Uh, we've been at this for about 40 minutes. If you have more questions, please feel free to reach out to me. Uh, I'm, we're working here. We've got 90% uh, of our employees working from home. We've got uh, six or seven of us working in the office. I'm happy to answer any questions you have, answer any emails. I will send everyone attending. Uh, a link uh, to our video of this presentation so you could share it with other people. I hope this has been useful. I had a great time, and I'll see you next time. Bye, guys.